You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Now, before we get started with the show, let me get another plug right here off the top for our Patreon page. Again, folks, if you think that this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, that's it, like a dollar a show, and you'd like to see the podcast keep going strong, please consider becoming a patron of our show. You can go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Island, and sign up. As a patron, you get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, and that chat really is just so much fun. So come and join us. I love talking Oak Island, especially during the show. doesn't distract me at all because then I watch it like two more times. But anyway, uh, come and join us. Patreon.com slash Digging Oak Island. Support the podcast. It's five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. If you prefer not to do the monthly thing, but you want to help the show out, you can do so by making a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. You have to use the username at Dave McBride Music. That's the only way I can do it. Uh, I'm a musician by trade, and that's my virtual tip jar, so that's the best place to do it. Venmo, and then use the username at Dave McBride Music. All right. As always, we're going to start today's podcast with emails and messages from you, the listeners. Now, as of Tuesday morning this week, there were actually zero emails. It's weird. Uh, I put out a little post to the patrons just to let them know that this was going to be a super short podcast. I swear to God, that is why I put out that that post, guys. It was not to make you all email, but a bunch of you did anyway and sent in some incredible emails. A few lengthy, a couple of lengthy ones, too. You guys are amazing. You really are. So... I mean, I have the best listeners. I, 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 it always never ceases to amaze me. So let's start with David. Now, we've got a couple of Daves, actually. Listeners to the show will recognize David as somebody who has called, or I'm sorry, who has written, written in to talk about uh, trees on Oak Island, the different fibers, all that kind of stuff. He has written a couple of books called Oak Island Mystery Trees and Other Forensic Answers. Um, there's you can I think you can get them on Amazon. There's also a smaller version of it uh, that's set, that's called Oak Island Mystery Fibers. Uh, that was from September of 2023. <laughs> so if you excuse me, so if you enjoy what you're about to hear from David, that's a good chance to go and find that book and really kind of dive into it. So here's what he writes. This is long. I don't understand a lot of it, and the beginning of it may seem a little dense, but it's going to get into what it means in just a second, okay? So hold on. (laughs) It says, Dave, due to your void, I am here to provide you with some filler with fiber. Starts off with a pun. Love it, David. Uh, This email is provided in three parts, should you need to break it up. If you would like me to provide additional images, documents, or publications regarding this theoretical discussion, let me know. The other parts are further below. With that aside, he writes, Part A. My current research has found that the date palm tree was revered as far back as Assyrian rulers, circa 1207 BC. 
There are many economic reasons why this palm is worshipped. And the date palm is the only palm species which produce clone offshoots. Therefore, the female plant is used to rapidly create plantations of identical date-growing trees. When you look at the imagery of date palms on garden walls of the pharaohs, Hebrew imagery, Roman coins, etc., you see a single trunk tree with no more than seven branches. These are actually leaves with one or two hanging date bunches and one or two offshoots growing at least or at the base of the trunk. This is the re this is the reverence to the date palm. Normally the palm grows wild like a shrub or a coppice made of multiple offshoots, trunks and thick overgrowth. All of these offshoots share the same root system with the mother plant. A web of screen fibers, aka mesh sheath fiber, grow to cover the trunks and the new offshoots. Uh, uh, yes, I have that right. This, this, pro this protects the plant from insect, animal, birds, and extreme weather. Therefore, the single trunk image uh, seen throughout the Near East art and culture represent highly sought cultivated female date palm, which produce a variety of dates um, which are unique to that female plant. Male date palm trees can fertilize up to 50 female palms and are grown solely for the purpose as for that purpose as they do not produce dates. So when looking at Assyrian imagery of the stylized date palm, you see weird side images which represent those offshoots. There are dozens of stylized images which represent the original sacred tree. Those images show rulers or genies, gods on either side of the sacred tree. One holds a cone, which depicts the applicator of the female pollen flower, brushing the female flowers of the tree to germinate the female tree to continue its propagation. The cone could also represent the male flower, which has the pollen and is similarly shaped but much larger. Knowledge about the pollination process of date palms back then show they actually used fir tree pine cones dipped into the bucket uh, carried by other king or genie. This bucket uh, carries the male sperm pollen. These are not UFO devices, as often referred to on ancient aliens, yet they are borrowed imagery in other culture depictions. Eventually, this image has come to represent the king's royal line, implementing the procreation and benefits from the sacred tree to his people, as well as to prove the king's connection to a deity or gods, the ultimate procreator of man in his own image. This image later morphs into the tree of life, as known by the Kabbalah of interest by the Knights Templar. Now, we're going to get into what matters now. I know that was a lot of um, science there. I'm not good at science and I'm terrible at reading it, but uh, we're going to get into what he's talking about here right now in part B. He writes, the evolution of Assyrian and Babylonian beliefs of the sacred tree and perhaps melded with the quote-unquote world tree, was eventually adopted and morphed by Egyptian, Babylonian, Hittite, and Hebrew early cultures. This also spread to India and was influenced by or influenced their Vedic symbology and sacred knowledge beliefs. Sufism and other Gnostic secret groups expanded this Assyrian sacred tree, the date palm, yet used the various trees and other symbols which had been part of their cultural mystic understandings, as the palm may not have even grown within their realm. Regardless, by the time the Templars had arrived in the King of Jerusalem, their hunt for important past relics found them exposed to these Gnostic, mystic, and ancient beliefs and cultural truths, including alchemy. 
This led to the hunt for and learning of sacred numbers and sacred knowledge. This included early conversations with Muslims, even though they were to eventually try to conquer them. Did the Templars incorporate knowledge of and create symbology for the date palm in any of this new discovery? We see that Nolan's cross on Oak Island may in fact be formed similarly to the Kabbalistic tree of life, steeped in the symbology and secret numbers and sacred and secret knowledge dating back to those ancient cultures. Perhaps the date palm fiber was there as a symbolic image. What could those be? Well, perhaps since the date palm mesh sheath fiber almost identical in physiochemical and microcellular characteristics of coconut fiber grew on the date palm to protect it. Therefore, was it symbolically placed on the two entrances to the underground on Oak Island? And if one looks at where and how it was said to have been applied to those two locations, the sixth level of the money pit, and atop the filtration system, Smith's Cove, we don't find a utilization of this fiber which makes any functional sense. At the filtration construct, it is atop five to six inches of eelgrass which was the filtering medium. The coconut fiber at best may provide some erosion control, but would not filter out anything other than large size shells, twigs, grasses, etc. The layered eelgrass would filter out the sand and other minute waterborne debris only. They could have applied grass, moss, wool, seaweed, or more eelgrass for the same effect. At the money pit, the sixth platform is universally identified as the platform with the coconut fiber. So symbolically, this is where the pit becomes the entrance to what lies below, such as perhaps the scrolls of sacred knowledge taken from under the Temple Mount of, uh, of acquired elsewhere in the Levant. The sacred knowledge is part of the parcel of the Tree of Life, which was rooted in the sacred tree of Assyrian of Assyria, I'm sorry, the date palm. So it is, is it plausible finding no other purpose for such so much fiber introduced to the island that it was merely applied as symbolic protection that of what lies below, like the protection of the fiber provided the date palm, ergo the tree of life? And finally, part C, having expressed this botanical connection, both physically, 1.54 metric tons found, and esoteric symbology through the Tree of Life built on Oak Island, there is another clue to this botanical connection. In Jacob Roberts' book quote the, or called The Holy Trinity Decryption, The Hidden Autobiography of Sir Francis Bacon, we learn of a well-known illustration, which is said to have been drawn by Samuel de Champlain, titled, and I'm not going to read it, Defeat the uh, defeat de, it means the, the the defeat of the Iroquois at Lake Champlain in French, circa 1613. This image depicts a fighting scene where Champlain is fighting off a significant number of Native Americans on the banks of Lake Champlain in Upper Canada. Regardless of the other encrypted images, codes, and numbers within the illustration or who is responsible for its creation, Roberts uses this as one of the multiple reasons questioning the nexus of Champlain being an alias for Bacon. One cannot overlook the three palm trees drawn into the forest background. Is this a hidden message referring to Oak Island where so much palm fiber was placed? And note, these are not coconut palm trees, but clearly the unique historical look of cultivated female date palms. Since the palms did not nor would not grow in these latitudes, why else would these be hidden there? Furthermore, there are three date palms of three different sizes from left to right. You have a medium-sized one on the left, center is a large-sized date palm, and on the right side is a small palm. 
As a member of secret societies, did Bacon learn of the stories of the secret knowledge acquired through the Templars and secreted around the world? Do three date palms, palm trees represent three entrances on the island to this, to this revered sacred knowledge and relics buried underground? And if so, looking at the tree sizes, would not the medium-sized tree represent the medium-sized opening of the money pit? The small sized represent the small flood tunnel, which was most likely an air shaft initially. And would this indicate the largest aperture entrance has yet to be found? And if the fellowship finds palm fiber in Aladdin's cave, currently called wood fiber, which is a euphemism and is really plant fiber, could this be the third tranche, uh, tranche of date palm fiber? Or if found on the swamp, is that the third entrance location? Below is a copy of the image of the Champlain uh, image. I have circled the date palm trees hidden in the background forest. More to come. David. Again, folks, if you want to get into this stuff, he's got books. Uh, David Neeson is his name. The book is called Oak Island Mystery Trees and Other Forensic Answers. Uh, incredible research. A couple of things. The first thing that comes off my to my head is I, I'm not really sure about the uh the money, uh, I'm sorry, the flood tunnel shafts being air shafts because uh, isn't there a much quicker way to build an air shaft and a much better one than all the way out by the ocean where they can get flooded? I'm not sure about that one, but uh, be that as it may, once again, this is some seriously good research you're doing here. I'm not convinced about the multiple ways into the treasure, but this image of the palm tree depicted on the banks of Lake Champlain is incredibly curious. I'll put this image on the Facebook page for you guys. It's obviously the artist made a point of adding these palm trees in a prominent location. Yet the artist must also have known that such trees would not have existed in the location he's depicting. So then why add them? Now, I'm not sure I can draw the conclusions you're drawing here just uh, from these trees, but it is fascinating to think about. And let's face it, whatever it actually is they called coconut fiber, and you're saying it's date palm fiber, is for sure one of the stranger things ever found on Oak Island. I've said in the past that the fiber found on the beach could certainly have come from a shipwreck uh, if it is indeed coconut fiber, but the fiber found in the money pit is a different story. Um, again, could be related somehow to the to underground movement from somewhere. Who knows? David, thank you again. Fascinating as always, and sometimes difficult for me to keep up with you for sure. Let's go now to another David. You guys have some great names. This is not the same David. This is our man BC Dave from British Columbia who writes, Hi Dave, BC Dave here with some positive thoughts on a week when the show itself is a bit sparse on new finds. Until recently, Lot 5 was not on the Oak Island list of targets. When the Laginas purchased the lot, they found the structure they are now excavating, glass beads and Roman-ish coins. Searching for more, I stumbled upon oakislandlot5.com. Honestly, exploring this website was more fun than any recent episode. There are over 100 photos of all of the finds the previous owner, Robert S. Young, in his years of owning the lot. Among his finds are several more Romanish coins, in quotes. But the coin that left me gobsmacked was the 1781 Spanish silver coin minted in Mexico. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first actual treasure that definitively predates the discovery of the money pit in 1795. Imagine the hullabaloo if this coin was uncovered by Gary Drayton. Of course, this one coin doesn't answer any of the big questions, but all the finds on Lot 5 together prove that major activities took place there. It's worth remembering that losing coins was, by definition, an accident. 
Whoever lost these valuables did not did so accidentally, like the many buttons also found. The number of individual coins found confirms that lots of people were on lot five. They didn't leave much else behind, which is very strange, and applies a level of discipline among those working here. If you are frustrated by the slow progress on the show, I highly recommend visiting this website. Keep up the good work. Best wishes from Canada, BC, Dave. Dave, yes, that website is fantastic. Uh, we've been talking about it for years. And Mr. Young found an awful lot of stuff on the island. Um, why the team, since acquiring this lot, never seemed to reference a single one of those finds, never cross-reference what they find now with things he found in the past, is absolutely astounding to me. I have no idea why they don't do that. But nonetheless, it is all right here for us to see. So, BC Dave, you sent in this image of the coin, and the, and I'll put that on the Facebook of the coin you're referencing. But we need you to keep going through this and sending us what you find interesting on that website, especially if you can relate it with some stuff that we've already seen. I'd love to be able to do that. Uh, I just don't have the time. So if, you, if you're looking through this a lot and you're, something's piquing your interest and you do some research and find something about it, please, please, please send it along. Uh, um, again, it's been a long time since I was able to really look into that site. Great stuff, my friend. Thank you for writing in. And finally, it's been a long one though. Our, our, our friend Steve writes, hey, Dave, hey there. I hope the new job is going well and the family's enjoying a warm early spring. Yes, Steve, the new job is going very, very well. Thank you for that. And I've managed to make it work here with the podcast for sure. So thank you. I've been thinking, he continues, I've been thinking a lot about the odd chronology and seemingly endless array of cultures that may have spent some time on the island. There must, however, be a discernible, if not difficult to unravel, sequence of events. It seems to me, if you want to define that timeline, you ought to start with whatever beginning you may know and then inch backwards into what you do not know. So here, here's the major premise that the showrunners keep hitting us with. There was a British military presence on the island, pine tar, wharves, military buttons, maybe blue clay, ballast stones, bullets, coins, etc. If this is true, there must be a minor premise, like eventually the British military left and never came back. After all, they're not there today, and Daniel McGuinness wasn't complaining about being shooed away by the Navy. So here are the dates we have to work with. 1720-ish, Gordon Fader claims the U-shaped structure was built by the British military to store cool pine tar, or store or cool pine tar. 1730s, garden shaft potentially built. 1758 is the siege of Louisbourg with a British victory. 1759, the British pressed their advantage and attacked Montreal. 1762, Oak Island is separated into lots. See that? Only a couple of years there. 1769, U-shaped structure dendro dated to this date. 1775 to 1783, British military, quote unquote, super busy with upstart colonists elsewhere. 1787, Samuel Ball said to be living on the island. 1795, the boys discover the money pit. And so when did the British leave? Again, that'd be a good starting point to work backwards in the timeline. Once you know when they left, you'd have some better ammo, no pun intended, to determine when they established an initial presence on the island. And when whomever was there before them, like the French or the Portuguese, left. My intuition tells me that the Navy would have been gone by the time the island was divided in 1762. I doubt the Navy would want any farmers around if they were up to something surreptitious. However, it makes some sense that they were still there when the island would have been a critical depot for the siege of Louisbourg. So perhaps the answer, with Louisbourg locked down and focus elsewhere, 
Perhaps they pulled up and left in the 1758 through 1762 window. We'd love to hear what your other listeners think of the question, how any evidence supports or refutes it, uh, and most importantly, if they also have an answer. Thanks, and dig on, Steve. Steve, I think there's probably a number of listeners (laughs) who might have something to add here, as I've talked about this same kind of timeline issue quite a bit. With a few listeners, and uh, you know, and, and most recently about the Cornwallis family and 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 things along those lines. So we definitely have some people out there. So write in if you've got anything to say on this. Uh, I I think the thing we can hang our hats on is that the preponderance of evidence found recently certainly points to after the initial colonization of North America by the Europeans, and less so, right? I, I mean, at least this is what we can we can start to narrow things down to less so from before that time period, i.e. the Templars, right? That's this at least serves to narrow things down. Like you're saying, even if only a little, you're trying to get it down to a four or five year period. And maybe we're getting to that point, right? Listen, at any point in all of this, I am 100% ready to jump aboard the Templar treasure train, believe me. But I just think at this point, it appears this mystery has a slightly less fantastical explanation, right? And something like you're saying here, Steve, because it kind of seems like the archaeology is pointing in that direction. Now, having said that, a couple of friends of ours, Chris Morford and Corey and Maul, their book comes out soon. And that might change a lot of people's minds on this, at least a bit. I've read most of it already, and uh, I don't have the final copy yet, but I I think uh, my mind is sort of swaying ever so slightly uh, towards the Templars again. You know, folks, if you have anything to add on Steve's timeline, uh, any questions or anything you want to put in here, just send it in. All three of these emails that we got this week open up some fantastic discussions here. Um, We got a lot we can talk about. So, okay. Anyway, that's it for the emails today. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, send them along to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right. It is time now to discuss season... 11 episode 13 of the coast curse of oak island called tea time Oof, it's a tough one let's begin at the money pit the episode opens actually with a war room conversation about the garden shaft and the money pit area and the work being done there and it kind of gives us a bit of a bombshell right rick and marty tell the team that they have decided not to bring in and put down any of those caissons, which they have been talking about doing for the last couple of weeks. Remember those giant cans that they've used in the past. We've been hearing that they were going to do that and that they were able to do it because it would be far enough away from the garden shaft to be able to do that work. Now, the reasons behind this in this scene are a little, uh, what's the word, murky to say the least, right? Marty is pretty clear, I think, on his reasons. He says, quote, we don't feel we have the requisite targets For canisters, which I take to mean, and I don't think I'm wrong here, that they have found nothing so far in their exploratory drilling, their sonar scanning, their video imaging of of any of the targets that they've been looking at. They found nothing there that would justify the expense and the effort of putting down one of these big caissons. But weirdly, the narration then goes into a recap about the garden shaft and all the issues with the flooding that they've had this year and on and on. And 
implies, well, actually more than implies, that this is this, this, this flooding, this problem with the garden shaft is in fact the reason they've decided not to use the canisters this year, the caissons. But folks, as I just said, that's not at all what Marty himself says. Now, there's some talk uh, by the guys after this narration about the garden shaft and maybe doing a caisson in the future. But again, it seems more likely they just don't see any reason uh, for, you know, <laughs> exploring anything that fully and that expensively outside of what the garden shaft work is being done now. Not at all what we were expecting to hear, right? Just not at all what we were expecting to hear. With that in mind, Steve on the Patreon made a few comments. He said, quote, seems odd to me, but I suppose they should err on the side of caution. He also said, but they have GPR, muons, 5,000 boreholes, et cetera. What are they looking for? Steve then also commented later on that, quote, because they often show things out of order, it's hard to tell if they're making this decision in July or in October, end quote. Now, Steve with regards to the timing, you're 100% correct. This decision could have been made much later in the year than it's than we're led to believe here. Uh, and it was something of a timing issue that factored into this decision. But again, that's not what Marty said. Um, and that was never mentioned, right? And to be fair, I'm stunned that the editors even let that line, quote, again, we don't feel we have the requisite targets for canisters. I am stunned the editors let that slip into the show because, as you say, Steve, it comes dangerously close to allowing us all to conclude that all of those things you listed, the muons, the boreholes, you know, have all of that stuff have actually produced nothing that Marty would call a requisite target worthy of doing this kind of work and investing this kind of money. It's a sobering thought, really, honestly. It's been a tough year so far. Anyway. I suppose in an effort to find a more requisite target or two, they returned to the sonic drilling and put down a new hole labeled HI-6.75, which down at a depth of uh, 118 feet, I think it was, they bring up part of their own pipe from a previous hole that they dug. Now, this indicates to them that the drilling they're doing now has veered way off course, and that kind of brings this whole thing to an end. But the question I have for you guys is I know there's some people here who probably have some idea of what this is. Why would they leave PVC piping underwater or, or sorry, underground in that area after they pull the holes out? What is that all about? I, I was confused by that and they didn't say. Anyway, if you know, diggingokailgmail.com. Finally, later on in the episode, we get a report that Dumas has concluded its project of extending the garden shaft down to a depth of 95 feet and can now start drilling down there into what they think is that tunnel just below that they've been tracking all year long, right? So the Dumas guys put down this rather small drill and hit something that stops the drill's progress. What the drill guy, a drill operator, said, thinks might be wood. That's what he says. They pull the drill up and conclude it is indeed wood. So maybe all of this work and consternation about the garden shaft will start paying dividends soon. Let's head now over to the swamp. Um, they're still digging along the southern edge of the swamp, uh, right along the beach here. Billy points out a line of rocks that the guys start saying could be part of the stone path. I have to say it's kind of impossible for me to render any opinion on that. It's just not clear enough yet, right? The narrator calls it a quote-unquote ramp feature, 
but the guys seem less certain about that. The way they're talking, they're kind of talking more of in a speculative way. Um, later, while Billy Gerhardt is grinding away on his huge digger, they hit yet more pottery. So Elizabeth on the Patreon remarked, quote, they don't know how to dig smart with a backhoe. Absolutely, Elizabeth. It just kills me that Gary gets all excited about this pottery they're finding, how old it is and how valuable it can be and how beautiful it is and all this. And he's been doing this for, you know, they've been, this is probably the third or fourth episode they've been digging under the road here, right? And yet they keep hammering away at it with the excavator and coming out with little pieces who knows those little pieces weren't caused, weren't whatever this was, wasn't smashed into little pieces by the excavator, right? Finally, at the end of this scene, Rick Lagina comes in and says they're going to have to start using shovels. And I think he says something like, uh, start digging a little more carefully. It's about time, guys. It's also interesting to note that after seeing pottery here for a couple of weeks now, right? Not just this one. We've not seen much analysis of any of that pottery from past weeks. Hopefully that's coming soon. Later on, Gary finds even more pottery. This is a black glazed piece that Gary seems kind of unfamiliar with what it could be. Although, I mean, his expertise is metal, not pottery. So there's no reason to think he needs to know. <laughs> Next, they find a big piece of leather, which is clearly the part of the heel of the, a part of the heel of a boot or a shoe. This is all underground. Gary points out that uh, from the way it's constructed, that nails were used in making uh, this heel, making this boot, which to him means it's older than the mid-1800s. Now, the narration, for some strange reason, decides the shoe is, quote-unquote, possibly ancient, which just made me burst out laughing, honestly. But Steve Bishop, a different Steve on the Patreon, he had a much more intelligent response to this than I did of just laughing, remarking, quote, not all shoes are glued today. For what it's worth, high-end English shoes still use nails. I even think L.L. Bean does some, some in their shoes as well. Steve, I'm not so sure about the L.L. Bean thing, um, but be that as it may, there is absolutely no reason at this point to think they are very, very old at all or ancient, right? <laughs> Which means from antiquity, right? from before the Dark Ages, um, none of that uh, seems to be where we are just yet, right? Hopefully we get some more on this shoe and we know, learn a little bit more about it. Be really cool little thing to help identify the person who the owner is, or what type of person, what type of shoe this was used for, this boot was used for, right? That kind of thing. So anyway, let's finish up over at Lot Five. We don't actually see Lot Five at all. At least I don't think we do. Um, but we have some past Lot Five finds that are analyzed and discussed in this week's episode. So let's talk about them right now. We begin at the Interpretive Center with Laird and uh, Emma Culligan being joined by Gary, Rick, and Alex Lagina to take a look at a couple of items found last week, one being um, a coin and the other being what appears to be glass beads. Now, they do a great job of cleaning up the coin and getting a good look at it and can say with certainty that it is a penny from, I thought they said originally, so the 1770s, and then somehow that morphed into the 1760s soon after. Either way. Not all that fascinating a find to me. I mean, it's really cool. It's a cool old penny. But we all know coins can be in circulation for decades and decades. So I don't think the 1760s time frame is all that informative or groundbreaking. So next, Laird takes a look at the glass bead. And he certainly seems to have an opinion on it, but he directs the guys instead to take it to an expert, which is exactly what they do. Jack Begley, Charles Barkhouse, drive off to the island to see a guy named Philip Doucette. 
to see what uh, he thinks of this bead, or more accurately, these beads, right? So they found two of them, almost identical, one a little bit bigger than the other uh, a couple of weeks ago. He calls them drawn glass beads and is very confident that they are from the 1500s through 1650 or so and were made in Venice, like most glass, ornamental glass was back then. Uh, He also um, calls them, quote unquote, a precious commodity and how they were uh, also explains how they were a highly valued currency or trading item during the age of discovery and the early colonial period and used most often by the Portuguese. Now, is this a family heirloom left behind by whoever built whatever the circular feature thing is on Lot 5? Or is this actually the first genuine sign of treasure on Oak Island? Well, I think we need to know the origins now of Lot 5 more than ever. We need to know what this structure is. We need to know what the archaeologists think this was built for and what kind of person might have built it before we can really start to answer questions about what this bead means. Anyway, it's a very exciting archaeological dig for sure. That's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head on over to patreon.com slash island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, then you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. And a big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating already. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Uh, we can use some new ones, so keep them coming, guys. You can also follow the show on Facebook. Just put at Digging Oak Island into your search bar. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And as I always tell you, um, if you have, do send me an email or a direct message. I'm going to read it on the air unless you tell me otherwise. So if you don't want your message read out to everyone, just make a note of that. I'll do my best to answer you. Well, folks, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.